Go ahead and turn, if you haven't already, to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're continuing today what we started last week. We started a new series in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Uh, and, and, and like we said last week, like one of the things that we love about Nehemiah is it's just this incredible book. Nehemiah is this incredible book that uh, is, about, is about leadership, about about starting a new work, kind of like church planting, right? About starting a new work. It's about how God renews culture, about how God calls his people to worship him faithfully and to be engaged on mission. And we talked last week about how really there's like a lot of parallels to church planting, right? And as we look at the story of Nehemiah, which is really the story of an ordinary guy who's been called by God to an extraordinary work. He's been called by God to to sort of rebuild the walls that have been torn down in Jerusalem. Because when the walls are down, when the city's not fortified, then what happens is God's people don't have a place to worship. They don't have a place to gather. They're scattered all around the place. Uh, and they don't have a place to, to worship. And so, and so God calls Nehemiah to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem so that on the one hand, uh, we can have, uh, so, that, so that God's people can have a place to worship him faithfully again. But also on the other hand, so that the surrounding community, so that the world, as they look in, uh, can have this faithful example of what it looks like to be the people of God. And really, that's kind of our desire in church planning, right? Like, that's our, we're, we're, we're planting the seed of the gospel, starting a new community of faith so that more and more people can come to know Jesus, but also so that the surrounding community can have another example of what it looks like uh, when the people of God follow him, worship him uh, faithfully. And so last week we talked about this increasing burden that Nehemiah has, Right? This increasing burden that Nehemiah has on his heart to return to Jerusalem, to, to rebuild the walls, to refortify the city so that God's people can once again worship him faithfully and also be a light to the surrounding world. And can we agree, like, that's a good ambition, right? Like, that's a good ambition. You might call that a holy ambition. That is a holy ambition. In other words, that is an ambition that Nehemiah had that has been set apart by God for God's purposes. And so what we're going to see in the weeks ahead, over the next several weeks, is that this holy ambition that Nehemiah has is something that God actually brings about through him. God brings about this ambition. Uh, He completes it. And so the question for us this morning is, how does an ordinary man like Nehemiah... An ordinary man like Nehemiah, how does he accomplish an extraordinary work of God? How does an ordinary group of people like us accomplish an extraordinary work of God like like church planting? You see, for, for Nehemiah, rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, like that was an extraordinary work. That was near impossible. The walls have been destroyed for over 100 years. Right? And countless others have tried again and again and again to refortify, to rebuild the city walls. Um, and they've tried again and again without success. 
As a matter of fact, like at this point in the historic narrative, at this point in Nehemiah, Nehemiah was actually employed by, he was working for King Artaxerxes. And this guy happened to be King Artaxerxes. He happened to be like the one dude who shut down the project of the walls like 20 years earlier. You see, King Artaxerxes, he kind of had this posse, this crew of advisors that he trusted, his, his cabinet, you know, this, this cabinet of advisors that were telling him, hey, look, if you let the Jews rebuild the temple, if you let them rebuild the walls and refortify their cities, then you know what's going to happen is they're going to regain strength, and they'll probably overthrow your power. And so King Artaxerxes, uh, like many kings, was like, well, I don't want that to happen, right? He's like, so he shut down that project. And so here's Nehemiah, and he's working for that guy. Nehemiah, part of the people of God. God's give him, given him a burden, this desire. He, God has stirred in Nehemiah a desire to rebuild the walls that his very wealthy, very influential, very powerful boss had, had shut down just years earlier. And so we've got Nehemiah with this God-given burden, and he's about to approach King Artaxerxes. He's about to approach his boss, the king, and attempt to persuade him to overthrow that that decree from years earlier. And so what does Nehemiah do? Right? He calls everyone into this conference room. He busts out a whiteboard, and he just makes this killer defense before the king, right? No. (laughs) That's not what he does. The first thing Nehemiah does is he drops to his knees in prayer. He drops to his knees in prayer. He lays the heart of the king in the hands of a sovereign God, and and, and he prays. You see, that's how holy ambition begins. That's where holy, any kind of holy ambition needs to start is with humble prayer. Holy ambition begins with humble prayer. So let's read the prayer that, that Nehemiah has for us. It's, um, it's starting in verse 4, going through verse 11. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, it says, As soon as I heard these words, as soon as Nehemiah heard these words about the walls broken down, Nehemiah says, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. And even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted corruptly against, against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. 
O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. You see, that's our passage this morning. That's our passage this morning. As we saw in verse 4, the first thing that he does is that he mourned for days. He continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Right? That's what we see in verse 4. And so, see, that is how ordinary people of God accomplish extraordinary works of God. Holy ambition begins with humble prayer. You see, without the intervention of a sovereign God, all the work that Nehemiah did and all that he, he hoped to do and aspired to do would just totally be beyond his capability. And so that reminds us of the words of Jesus that when Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nehemiah is owning that truth right now. You see, prayer, prayer, asking for the power of God at work in us and through us, prayer is a primary ingredient in accomplishing God's work. It's the means. It's the means by which God chooses to accomplish His sovereign will. Like, that's why we pray. You see, because God loves to work through through prayer. You know, some people who say like, you know, uh, you know, Christians are so odd, like they like they pray to this God who's in control of everything. But if He was really in control of it, everything, like what, like why, why do we need to pray at all, right? Because God invites us into into prayer. You see, God could grow trees out of nothing, right? He could grow cre- trees out of the ground, just completely out of nothing. But the normal normative way that He does that is through seed, water, sunlight. Right, and that doesn't make photosynthesis like any less brilliant, any less magical, any less miraculous, any less the work of a sovereign God. You see, in the same way, God can plant churches successfully. He can refortify cities successfully, completely out of nowhere if he wanted to, but the normative way that he does that because he's a loving father, is that he invites his children to talk to him about it. He invites his children into prayer. The normative way that God plants churches is through the word preach, through the church unified, and through prayers lifted up in the name of Jesus. And so see, as a church plant, like that's why we need prayer. That's why we need prayer. We need this posture of humble prayer. Without this, without prayer, like nothing else matters. All, all our preaching, all other, other gifts, talents, resources, they're all secondary if we don't have the gracious work of God in and among us. And so now as God's children, as God's children, like does that, does it make a difference? Like does it make a difference if we as God's children, does it make a difference how we pray? I mean, no on the one hand, but, but yes at the same time. Right? Like, no, it doesn't matter. Like God invites us to come to him and just talk to him as like a little child would to, to, to their parent, right? Uh, but at the same time, like, we don't expect a 20-year-old to speak the same way as a 2-year-old, right? I mean, my, my, my daughter is like two and a half right, right now. Uh, and like a year ago, her favorite word was like more, right? Or mine, 
right? Now, like her new favorite phrase is, uh, she, she says, Dad, that's so random. <laughs> she's like two and a half, and she's like, Dad, that's, that's so random. Um, you see, she evolves in the way that she communicates with her father. And, and the same is true for us when we pray to our Heavenly Father. Like, there's a very real sense in which, like, yeah, we can, we can come to God as, as children just openly and undignified. Uh, but the more we know Him, the more that we grow in our knowledge of Him, the, uh, like our, our, chain, our prayers should mature and, and evolve. And so I want us to look at Nehemiah's prayer as a model for how to pray, especially when we have a holy ambition. We're going to look at Nehemiah's prayer as a model for how to pray when we have a holy ambition. And so we're going to notice four marks of humble prayer because, you know, holy ambition begins with humble prayer. And those four marks are, are one, uh, humble prayer is marked by a vision of God's character. Secondly, a need for God's grace. Third, a foundation on God's promises. And fourth, a dependence on God's power. Let's look at that first one. A vision of God's character. Humble prayer is marked by a vision of God's character. Look at verse 5 with me. Verse 5 in this prayer says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who, who love Him, and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. And we'll, we'll stop there for now. You see, Nehemiah, he begins his prayer by, by declaring the, the worth, the value, the beauty of the character of God. Like that's where he starts, by exalting God, by, by declaring his worth. You see, it starts with who God is, not with what I want. Like, humble prayer starts with who God is, not, not with what I want. And you see, often when we think of prayer... Like, man, it's time to pray. Like, normally we say that when it's like, man, I, I really need this situation fixed, right? I really need my circumstances to change. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, we should do that. As his children, we should absolutely do that. But humble prayer, especially as it relates to holy ambition, begins with declaring the worth, value, and beauty of God. It starts with who he is, not with what I want. You see, it's interesting. Nehemiah's request in this prayer doesn't actually show up until the very end. It doesn't show up until the end. Like Nehemiah's prayer begins with acknowledging, exalting, revering the character of God. You see, almost every extended prayer that we read in the scriptures, almost every extended prayer we read begins like this. You know, Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer, like the most famous prayer in the Bible with um, most of us know it, those those words, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. In other words, God, you are so other than us. You're on an entirely different plane, right? Like he begins, Nehemiah begins with the acknowledgement that God is great and I am not. You see, look, there are countless benefits to being a child of God, for sure. Like, there are countless benefits to being a child, being able to talk to the Father, like, in an undignified way. There's so many benefits to being a child of God. But you're still a child of God. You're not His equal. 
You see, if you're a son or daughter of God, you can come boldly to the throne. You can come boldly to the throne in a beautiful and powerful way, but he's still the one who sits on the throne. He's still the one who sits on the throne. And so when you pray, when we pray, and when we acknowledge who our God is, when we pray, what you're doing is you're bringing your request to the Creator God of the universe who reigns sovereignly over all peoples, over all powers, over all kingdoms. You see, the Old Testament Jews, they knew Him as Yahweh, which means the great I Am. In other words, he's not just merely the God of Jerusalem or the God of Palestine or the God of some other region. He's the God who just is. He's the God who is. The God who rules over all creation, the heavens above and the earth below. And when you start here, when you start with who God is rather than what you want, when you start there, When you hallow his name, then you're reminded of your place as a dependent creature. Reformed theologian Herman Bavink, he says, you know, the the most, uh, there, there are no such thing as independent creatures, right? Like you can't, you can't be a created being and, 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 and independent, See, Nehemiah calls Yahweh in verse 5, he says, the great and awesome God. The great and awesome God. Now, by the way, like if you were born in the early 80s, like, like, like me, um, like I was, or any time after that, like that word awesome is like totally destroyed for us, right? So we can thank our parents for that. Um, like today, we can say that like pizza is awesome, right? And... Um, I will argue with you all day long that that is a true statement, right? Like, pizza is awesome, and we would be right to say that because the word has kind of been redefined for us. But awesome, that word awesome in the true sense of the word, in its correct original definition of the word, means that, you know, something that produces such such awe and wonder and inspiration that it just immobilizes you. You're just dead in your tracks. It's immobilizing. And so when Nehemiah calls this God the great and awesome God, he's acknowledging that God's value, his worth, his beauty exists on an entirely greater plane than a slice of pepperoni. He's speaking of a godly fear that is shaped by the majesty of God's character. You see, God is merely... It's not merely just the greatest character in the story of the world. He's not just the greatest character in the story of the world. He's the transcendent author of the story. You see, God's the one who writes the redemptive story of the cosmos that you and I are living in right now. The very breath you're taking right now is borrowed from Him. He's the author. He's not just the greatest character. He's the author of the story. You see, few things in this world will spur you on to humble prayer and holy ambition than meditating on the godness of God, than meditating on His greatness, the fullness of His attributes, the fullness of His his character. You see, never let anyone tell you that doctrine and theology is irrelevant or like a waste of time. 
Never let anyone tell you that theology is irrelevant or that it's just not practical. When you think much of the Creator, when you exalt God in your mind, when you consider His worth and His beauty, it will only fuel a holy and purposeful and intentional ambition in God's created world. It's the most practical thing you could do in light of eternity. You see, Nehemiah doesn't just acknowledge the character of God's majesty in this passage. He also acknowledges the character of God's love. Look at verse 5 again. He says, This great and awesome God is the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Nehemiah says this God is a covenant-keeping God. Do you know what a covenant is? Every Jew that was reading this letter knew, in the Old Testament, knew what that word covenant meant. It's a wildly important word. Covenant basically is like a binding promise or agreement that defines the relationship between two parties. You've probably heard that marriage is a covenant, right? Marriage is a covenant. Covenants are the mean, and covenants are the means by which God has always framed and defined his relationship with humanity. He made a covenant with Adam and Eve, with Moses, with Noah, with, with, with David. Jesus ushers in the new covenant. You see, covenant is the means by which God has always framed his relationship with, with us as his creatures. And see, God entered a covenant relationship with people through Moses when he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And see, so when Nehemiah says that God is the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, his readers are thinking of that covenant. He is our God and we are his people. So Nehemiah, when he says that God is a covenant keeping God, he is making a very profound statement that we cannot miss. He's saying that this God, this great and awesome God, is always faithful to his word to us. He's always steadfast in his love. See, he is a God that is unlike any other God. He's a God of covenantal love. Nehemiah's prayer begins with the declaration of God's prayer. The God who sovereignly rules over all and can reduce mountains to rubble. But he's also the God who keeps his love promises to those that belong to him. That's an awesome God in the true sense of the word. And so there's no one like this God. His power is not diminished by his love, and his love is not diluted by his power. You see, do you struggle in your prayer life? Pretty much all of us do, right? Like, have room to grow. Like, we, we all struggle in our prayer lives. And so if you struggle in your prayer life, just consider the character and attributes of God. Hopefully, as we're, we're going over his character, his, his awesomeness and majesty, and also his covenantal love, huh, God is stirring something in you right now, if you belong to him, to say, man, I want to spend more time talking to a God like that. I want to spend more time in the safety of his arms, meditating on who he is, getting better acquainted with him. 
And so that's the first thing. Humble prayer is marked by a vision of God's character. Secondly, humble prayer is also marked by a need for God's grace. A need for God's grace. You see, Nehemiah, upon reflecting on the character of God, how great and awesome he is, Nehemiah now recognizes that the next most natural response to a God like that is to acknowledge your need for grace. Kind of like we did. We started with a call to worship, singing about how awesome God is, and then we, we moved into our time of, of, of silence and confession, right? Like the most natural response to a great and awesome God is to acknowledge our need for His grace. That's what Nehemiah does in verses 6 and 7. He says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. He says, even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. You see, this is confession. Nehemiah is readily owning, he's owning his own sin, his own brokenness. Notice the pronouns that he uses. He says, we, I, our, my. He confesses his own sin, his own falling short. You see, this is sort of like the complete 180 opposite of the world in which we're all individuals and we answer to no one except ourselves. And we're always blaming others, right? Is this political party's problem? No, it's like they're the issue over here. Or no, it's the rich or it's, it's the poor, right? Like the nature of humanity is always to reject responsibility from day one. That's been the nature of, of humanity. And Paul says in the New Testament, he says, hey, look, we're a church and we're like one body. And so if one member suffers, we all suffer together. And if one member is honored, we all rejoice together. And what I love about Nehemiah is that he gets that. Nehemiah gets the corporateness, the togetherness that he has with the rest of the people of God. You see, Nehemiah could have easily said, you know, God, and it, God could have, or Nehemiah could have easily prayed and, and said, you know, God, you know, some, some, pretty, some pretty lousy people of yours, they like really mess things up in our city. They got the walls destroyed. Then our church burned down like a long, a long time ago. Like he, like he could have said that and that would have been true. Because he wasn't there when the walls actually came down. But Nehemiah, instead, he recognizes his own brokenness as a part of the corporate nation of Israel. We see, when we see something broken in the world, like we, we love to point fingers, right? Like I used to go to a church where every time sin was mentioned in a sermon, it was always about how the problem is always out there rather than the problem that happens in here. And one of the greatest tragedies of Christianity is when we, when we preach repentance to all the non-followers of Jesus and we don't actually do it ourselves. You see, what the Bible would tell us and what Nehemiah understood is that fundamentally, we all fall short 
of the glory of God. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why Nehemiah names the commandments, the statutes, the rules of the law. He's saying, look, God, we broke it all. We're guilty of all of it. And so all of us, both individually and collectively, we all have fallen short of the glory of God. We all undermine the forward progress of the gospel, the mission of Jesus, and the health and unity of the church. Apart from the grace of God, we're nothing. We'll have no success in church planting, in the mission, in our unity, in our health. And what I love about Nehemiah is that he understands that and he owns that. He says, look, God, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of grace too. I haven't arrived at anything. I'm just like the rest of them. I've done my part and I'll own that. You see, this is actually more important than having a passion for the holy ambition of church planting. Like as noble as it is, we need to have a passion to be right before God. A passion for the gospel. That's why the church exists. Because of the gospel and we grow in the gospel. Like we said earlier, we never graduate from our need for God's grace. So if you're here... Because we're a new church plant and you want to serve with your gifts in our, in our mission because, you know, we're a new church plant. The roles haven't been defined and, hey, maybe I'll serve here so that I can have a role and I can be in front of people and I can use my gifts. Like, you're not going to be any help. That's not why we're here. But if you're here and you're saying, man, I'm a sinner in need of grace. I'm going to plead before my God, my great and awesome God, on behalf of the brokenness in my community, the messiness of my church, the sinfulness in my own heart. Man, let's follow Jesus together. Let's grow in Him. We'll find something for you to do. Because it's all about Him. It's We never move on from our need for God's grace. You see, this is the most important part of it. We need to have a passion to be right before God, a passion for the gospel before we have a passion for our holy ambition. And so ask yourselves, like, like what, what sin, what, what brokenness in your life could hinder the mission of the gospel? Because of his grand view of God's awesomeness, like Nehemiah, he had, he had this keen sense of his own brokenness. So he had a passion to be right before God. And so we should too. Thirdly, humble prayer is also marked with a foundation on the promises of God. Foundation on the promises of God. Look at verse 8 with me. Nehemiah is still praying and he says, God, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. You see, Nehemiah right here, he's actually like literally quoting the book of Deuteronomy here. He's literally quoting the book of Deuteronomy. He's saying, look, God, 
you said this would happen. He says, God, you said this would happen. You said that if we disobeyed you, that you would scatter us in judgment. And you did. But you attached to that a promise, Lord. He says, you said if we repent, then you will heal us. You will bring us back. You see, Nehemiah, he was recalling the promises of God. He was recalling the promises of God. And that is what establishes great confidence in God, is the promises of God. You see, Nehemiah is holding on to the fact that, that God has promised He promised to never leave us. He promised to never forsake us. That even when we're faithless, he'll be faithful. And so, listen, when we we bring, when we come with our need for God's grace, like, you need to understand, like, we, we bring nothing to the table. We bring nothing to the table except our need. Nothing. We come to God with empty hands saying, saying, God, all we have is your word. All we have are your promises. All we have, Lord, is your faithfulness to us. You see, Nehemiah's holy ambition to rebuild Jerusalem was resting on the promise that God would gather his people back and make his name, his fame, his reputation dwell there again. Our holy ambition at King's Cross Church, our holy ambition is also resting on the promises of God. This church family exists for one reason, for one reason, and that is to spread the fame of Jesus. That's why we exist, is to spread the fame of Jesus. Like, that's it. When when, when you boil it down, that's all that we're about. That's all that's, that matters, and, and that will never change. By the grace of God, that will never change. And that mission that we have is riding on the promise of Jesus in the Great Commission. When Jesus said, look, make disciples of all nations, and I am with you always to the end of the age. I will see this through, Jesus promised us. Our holy ambition is also resting on the promises of God. The fourth mark of a humble prayer is dependence on God's power. Dependent on God's power. Read verse 11 with me. He says, Give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's speaking of King Artaxerxes. Grant me mercy in the sight of this man. And then he says, I was cupbearer to the king. You see, Nehemiah was about to meet again. He was about to meet with his boss, who happened to be a very wealthy, very influential, very powerful man. Like we, and like we mentioned earlier, like he's the guy that has actually been standing in the way of the walls being rebuilt for the last few decades. And so Nehemiah is saying, God... Nehemiah is praying and he's saying, God, you have stirred my heart. You have reignited in me a passion. I see the walls around Jerusalem, these broken walls. I see them as you see them. And I'm about to make this impossible request before the king. But there's not one request I can bring you that is beyond your ability. And so then he essentially prays, God, change the heart of the most powerful men on this planet. 
That's Nehemiah's prayer. God changed the heart of the most powerful man on this planet. Man, he's dependent on the power of God. You see, like Nehemiah, we want God to provide resources, to add to our number, to unify us, to grow us, to build his church. And if you're on our launch team, you know that that's why we've been praying and praying and praying for months leading up to these services. But we can always pray more. Like we should always pray more. There could be a temptation to say, look, now we have services, we're gradually growing, people are getting baptized, things are great. And so, we, you know, maybe we don't need to pray as much. But God brought us together. He brought those of us in this room together to unify us, to stir our hearts together for this community that we live, live in, and, and, and to pray, to pray for more people to meet Jesus, to pray for more lives to be changed, for more churches to be planted, for more generations upon generations of families to be renewed by the gospel. You see, those prayers should never stop, all right? Like those prayers that we've been praying, they should, they should never stop. And so we, we also... Just like Nehemiah, we want God to change hearts. Something that seems impossible, right? We're dependent on God's power for him to change hearts. You see, Nehemiah prayed that the king's heart would change. He prayed for the king's heart to change because he, he, he believed that God could do that. He believed that God could and that God could change the and, 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 and we know that, that God, he can, he can change the heart of, of us too. God, thank you. God could change the heart of your son. He could change the heart of your daughter, your spouse, your, your parent, your, your neighbor, your, your friend, your coworker. Missionary Hudson Taylor, he, he, he once said, it is impossible to move men through God. Or it, sorry, he said, it is possible to move men through God by prayer alone. It is possible to move men through God by prayer alone. Do you believe that? Whether or not you believe it, like that will determine how you pray. What are you asking God to do that seems impossible without him? What Nehemiah was asking for was impossible without the intervention of a sovereign God. And so what are you asking God to do in your life, for your neighbors, for our church? What are you asking God to do that only he can do, that only he can get the glory for? That's how we pray. And so it starts with prayer. Holy ambition starts with prayer. You see, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense that the book of Nehemiah begins with this prayer. You see, because the rest of the book is basically the unfolding of how God has answered this prayer. How God answered the prayer of Nehemiah. You see, Nehemiah interceded. He interceded on behalf of the people of God. That means that he stood on behalf of God's people 
to plead with God. He interceded on behalf of the people of God because he had a holy ambition in front of him. You know, Jesus, Jesus did the same. Jesus did the same. Jesus interceded on behalf of his people throughout history. His people throughout history, people like you and me, because of the holy ambition in front of him. You see, Nehemiah identified with the collective sins of the scattered people of God. Jesus, he left the glories of heaven to fully identify with the collective sins of fallen humanity. And just hours before his death on the cross, Jesus was actually sitting in a garden. He was sitting in a garden and 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 he and, and you know what he was doing? He was he was praying. He was sitting in the garden underneath the moonlight and he was he was praying. And Jesus prayed that God would unify his disciples, that they would be sent on a mission just like he was, and that they would multiply. That's what Jesus prayed for. In other words, Jesus was interceding, pleading, and praying to God the Father that his disciples would make more disciples and plant more churches. Elsewhere, Jesus declared, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And you know what? We know that Jesus is good on that promise. We know that his prayers answered. How do we know that? Not just because he's the perfect son of the Father, and so his prayers, he's always praying the will of the Father, but because days later, after Jesus prayed, declared that and prayed that, days later at Pentecost, 3,000 people in the beginning of the book of Acts, 3,000 people got saved. And that group of people followed that great commission of making disciples and planting churches. And more 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 people came to know Jesus throughout history. And here we are, 2,000 years later, after he prayed that prayer in Rancho Santa Margarita, California, singing songs about him, uniting in him, proclaiming him, making disciples and planting churches all for him. For his fame. You see, the Son of God, he never prayed in a way that was contrary to the will of the Father. And so we pray a holy ambition like Nehemiah did in Nehemiah 1 and like Jesus did in John 17, knowing that God works through our prayers. If you want to boil it down, the church exists for one reason. That's to make the name of Jesus great to spread his fame. That's all we care about. That is our holy ambition. And so we want to be marked with humble prayer. And so that's what we pray for. We pray for that holy ambition. Is that what you pray for? Do you know what's going on with the church and with the people here? And, like, do, you, and do, you, do you pray for that? Do you pray for, for this church and, and, and its leaders, its members, our needs, the needs of the people here? Do you pray for the glory of the gospel of grace to be displayed in our unity and in our mission? 
Do you pray for opportunities to, to serve, to declare Jesus, to display Him in the world? You see, we need to come to Jesus to come to receive grace and also to remember His promises. You see, we need to join each other in a holy ambition of church planning, but also in humble prayer. Humble prayer. So that with God's power and by His grace, we can be used by Him to add to His family. So God's family can grow. So His fame can spread. And so let's, let's be a praying church like that. Amen? Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. If you would like to learn more about King's Cross Church or make a donation, please visit kx.church. Here at King's Cross, we believe that worship means more than just listening to a sermon, and we encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. For Sunday morning meeting time and location for King's Cross Church, please visit kx.church. Thanks again for listening.